The scripture reading today is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. You can find it printed on page 9 of your worship folder. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ." Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjugation under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjugation, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjugation under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjugation under him, so that God may be all in all. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. I was, um, I was nine years old the first time I saw Psycho. It's <laughs> a pretty normal thing, right? Uh, my mom, who loved horror movies, brought a VHS home from Blockbuster um, on a Friday night, and I was introduced to the world of horror films. <clears throat> there are a lot of scary scenes in Psycho. Um, I won't go into them right now, but I do have an encyclopedic knowledge, so grab me afterwards if you want to talk about it. Uh, at the very end, though, when they all end up in Norman Bates's basement, there's a moment where they think they've found the mother at long last, the end of this trek to find her, and so they turn her around and very slowly you see that the mother is not alive any longer. She is just a skeleton, and you see the skull, and you see her sunken eye sockets and the nose bone that's no longer there. And Aren't horror movies great? <laughs> you see what used to be a human face, and this outside of a goldfish or two, was my very first encounter with death. I spent the whole night after it uh, watching out the window from my bedroom, waiting for this skull to stare down at me. It was a terrible idea to show a nine-year-old psycho, don't do it if you're a parent. I think my mom thought that because it was from the 60s, it wouldn't be scary. It's still terrifying. But in some weird way, Psycho began not only my lifelong love of horror movies, but this kind, of, uh, this kind of morbid, kind of normal obsession with death. 
The idea that at one point people are, we exist, we breathe, we are flesh and blood, we are animated and alive. And then not too long from the moment we start, we end. That we are dust and to dust we return. My grandfather passed away earlier this month, my dad's dad. He was born and raised in a small town in northeastern Illinois that he did not leave until he was in his 60s. He loved golf and tennis, and he wore these matching track suits that my grandmother purchased for him. Um, he ate ice cream almost every day of his life. He would wait until like 7 p.m. and all day he would say, well, I'm not, not today, I think I can make it today. Not, no Baskin-Robbins for me. And then right around 7, he would start to look at his watch and ask us, well, do, do you want, would, you, would you eat some ice cream if I got it? Like an al alcoholic who wants someone else to join in their drink with him. But still, on July 12th, all of the memories and experiences and moments and smells and sights that made his life his were gone. Another friend of mine, a 37-year-old mother of two, died in May. Her life was remarkable and it was cut so short. And we talk a lot about hope in our faith tradition, rightfully so. But what I want to know is how can we have hope when we contend so closely with death? What do we do when our hope is different from God's reality? That, I think, is what this passage that we just heard is all about, that we humans can only see so far. We start to wonder if the story really does end in death. God says otherwise. I preached here a few years ago when I was in the middle of one of the hardest times of my life. I had had a miscarriage at around 12 weeks uh, with a very much hoped for pregnancy. There were no answers or reassurances, only suggestions to try again. And um, one doctor <clears throat> told me that if I had been 18 or 19, things might have turned out differently. But because I was 31, um, I might have had eggs that were too old. And still, when I think back about that doctor, I just wish I could see her again so that I could punch her in the face. In, in Christian love. After that miscarriage, I had two more, three in nine months. And for a time, I felt like the only thing my body could birth was more death. In his beautiful book, Lament for a Son, the philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff recounts his suffering after his 25-year-old son died in a mountain climbing accident in Europe. I have no explanation, he writes. I can do nothing else than endure in the face of this deepest and most painful of mysteries. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I also believe that my son's life was cut off in its prime. I cannot fit these pieces together. I am at a loss to the most agonized question I have ever asked. I do not know the answer. I do not know why God would watch him fall. I do not know why God would watch me wounded. I cannot even guess. The blankets and the shoes and the baby clothes that we had bought or been given went into a storage box marked, marked future. And the suffering started to suffuse my daily life with a sense of deep darkness. 
a couple of people talked to me about scar tissue and how it builds up after injuries and has these incredible properties like the ability to replicate the tissue that once was there and do what it used to do. And all I wanted to do was tell them that I had lost my child, my children. And I didn't need some moral object lesson about scar tissue while I was still bleeding from a surgery that removed the remains of the pregnancy from my body. Christians, especially white American Christians, we are so often quick to skip to the moral of the story that we forget we are part of a religion whose whole point is that we all suffer and that there is something to do with that suffering. Which is not to say that life should be miserable or full of fear, but to state a simple principle of reality, which is that everyone who is human who lives long enough will suffer. Our impulse is to impose order on chaos, but it's one that tries to avoid suffering. And it is often true that the best art actually works to impose chaos on order. This is why I love that Nicholas Woltersdorf book I quoted from a moment ago. It's so fragmented, like grief. There's no single entry that's more than a few pages long in it. It raises more questions than answers. It is like suffering itself. So why then do we hope in a world as marked by suffering as ours is? I have begun to see in myself in recent years after the miscarriages and after a difficult pregnancy and a difficult birth that somewhere along the way, I started to see cynicism as a virtue. I started to believe that the best way to live with fear of disappointment was to wall myself off from ever hoping again. Maybe you have done this. Maybe you know someone who is doing this. This, I think, is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, when he says, if for this life... We have, for this life only, we have hoped in Christ. We are of all people to be most pitied. Because really, if our hope in the saving work of Christ is only for this life and not for something greater than we can imagine, what are we doing? We can imagine kindness and respect without Jesus. We can cultivate service and care we can live moral and upright lives without God while we slowly cut ourselves off from the possibility of hope. We can be good people while we choke out belief. What we cannot do in that case is believe in eternity. We can be moral, good, kind, service-oriented, and entirely done when our bodies give out. Our hope can last for this life alone and then with us it dies. But not so fast, says God. God who likes to have the last word. God who, as Jesus, once bemoaned how far we ran from him. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he said, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. I think that cynicism is one of the ways that we, that I, am unwilling to be gathered to God. 
many of you will know that my story did not end with those three miscarriages. Just over a year ago, I gave birth to a beautiful, tiny, not so tiny anymore, precious little boy named Chance. And he is wonderful. And he sleeps well, and he finds joy in the water. And he laughs and laughs, and his existence gives me hope. But I was reading recently about a father whose two-year-old daughter was struck in the head by a brick in New York City, and she died. She was sitting on a bench with her grandmother, and her parents rushed to her in the emergency room, hoping against hope that they would see their little girl alive only to be asked whether they wanted to donate her organs. After she died, her father found, herself, found himself wandering into a church, and he wrote, I have been raised by secular parents, and I've never set foot in a church for more than an hour, but I will do anything for Greta, I am learning. And that includes becoming a mystic, so that I might still enjoy her company. Where is hope for someone like that? Because it is easy for me to point to chance, to point to my son and say, I got my happy ending. I didn't know it was coming, but here he is. But if hope is only for those of us who have happy endings, then there are a lot of people in this world who are missing out on hope, and there are a lot of people in this room who are missing out on hope. Maybe you are one of them. Hope has to be reckoned with. Hope goes much deeper than the superficial. Hope, I think, is the province of the desperate. And maybe, in a special way, hope belongs to the desperate more than anyone else. Maybe that is what Jesus means when he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They will receive solace in their affliction. Hope can come to me. And yes, easily sometimes, because I have my son, but where is hope for the woman who has had 10 miscarriages and no child? Where is hope for the man whose daughter died? Where is hope for the couple who are nearing a divorce, or the wife who lost her husband, or the man who wants to be married but isn't? Where is hope for all the people who have been marginalized by the church? There's a great book by the theologian Howard Thurman called Jesus and the Disinherited. And Thurman spends a chapter in it talking about the nature of fear, particularly as it relates to the poor and the disinherited, people who have spent their lives in fear of violence and scarcity and oppression. He talks about how Jesus navigates, and I love this phrase, fear and its twin sons of thunder, anxiety and despair. And Thurman says that in the absence of all hope, ambition dies and the very self is corroded and weakened. To hope is to be vulnerable. It can be easier to give up hope than to risk disappointment. What do we do with that? The philosopher Jean Vanier, who some of you will know uh, and was a good friend and mentor to Henry Nouwen, who died, um, Vanier died just a few months ago. Uh, he was on track to have a great career as a respected militiaman in the French military, in the Canadian Navy then during World War II, and then convicted of a strong spiritual calling 
after that service to do something else. And I love how he phrases that. I don't know what I'm going to do, just something else. Something else. He went to the academy and he did his PhD in philosophy and still something else called. And so in 1964, Venier co-founded this community called L'Arche, which is a place where people with disabilities live with their caretakers, and it operates under the belief that nobody is useless and everybody has something to teach someone else. I listened to an episode of a podcast recently where the host was interviewing Vanier right before he died, and she asked him, after all that you have done and created in the name of God, who do you think God is? And this philosopher, this man who has seen what others would call suffering and pronounced it good, he said this, I am struck by how vulnerable God is. If God is love, that means that God is terribly vulnerable. Vulnerable, which means, quite literally from the Latin, open to being wounded. God wounded? I hadn't thought of him much this way. Omnipotent, capricious, judgmental, towering, loving, all-knowing. Sure, but vulnerable? Venier mentioned the passage in Revelation where God says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. God knocks, we are reminded. He doesn't pound down the door. God respects our freedom enough to knock. And so often, we do not hear. Toward the end of Lament for a Son, Nicholas Voltersdorf reflects on God's suffering. And it is here that I start to remember that God's suffering is what our faith is all about. Jesus knew suffering. Jesus, who took on human limitations, who fell as he carried the cross, and who thirsted as he was dying, of course God could be wounded. Of course, we are not alone in our grief. Boltersdorf says this, It is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. I always thought this meant that no one could see God's splendor and live. A friend said that perhaps it meant that no one could see God's sorrow and live. Or perhaps, Boltersdorf says, perhaps his sorrow is his splendor. I think my mistake with hope is twofold. I think it cannot coexist with sorrow, and I think I have to gin it up myself. In many ways, we hope in vain because we cannot create our own hope. We cannot feel our way to hope. Our feelings are not usually to be trusted. We hope that we will never die, or at least that we can avoid confronting the pain of death. We hope that we will get what we want so that we can impress other people. We hope that we will be made perfect, that our faith will not disappoint us, that we will not bleed when we're pregnant or lose our jobs or that our parents will never get sick. Our ideas about God and what God will do are often wrong and we are impatient and the full picture of what lies ahead is both more brutal and more glorious than what we can even imagine. 
But if we are to believe the passage that we heard today, death, which we fear, death, which keeps us from life, that death has already been conquered by another death. It is in the resurrection that we recognize that the turning toward hope has already been done for us. We do not need to do more, be more, achieve more, hope in the right way or know the outcome. All we have to do is turn our faces toward God. In the early church, and still sometimes today in the Orthodox tradition, those who were about to be baptized would stand facing the west, which is the direction of the setting sun, and I believe is this way. Um, it's the direction from which night falls, and so it's thought to be evil. And so those who are about to be baptized would stand facing this way, and they would be asked, do you renounce Satan? And three times they would say, I do. I renounce Satan. I renounce him. I renounce Satan. And then they would turn to the east, to the direction of the morning sun where the light came from, and they would confess their desire to be united with Christ. Our turning toward hope is this small turning. The bigger one has already been done, has always been done, because from the beginning of time, God's face has been set towards us. The larger turning is completed because God created the world in a posture of orientation toward us, always ready, always active. God is not passively sitting and hoping that we will come along, although the decision is ours while we open the door. To have any real meaning, though, hope has to pass through death and come out on the other side. And hope, as an abstract concept, cannot do that, can never do that, but hope as a person can, and hope as a person did. How might this affect your life, your day? This might be a moment for you to name a place where you feel vulnerable right now, a relationship going badly, something in your emotional life, your financial life, your relationship to your body, a loss that seems to have grabbed you by the throat and won't let go. Naming is a powerful act. And when we can name where we are vulnerable, we can bring it before the God of the cross to begin the long road of healing, which we don't walk alone. We also might be able to bring hope to someone else. And sometimes the act of carrying hope is the thing that comes to us when we are trying to garner hope in ourselves. As Jean Vanier said and knew when he founded L'Arche, sometimes we see the abiding power and presence of hope more clearly when we look at another person than when we ruminate on our own situations. We have to be willing to turn, and that is all. A shift from west to east, from night to morning, from darkness to light, and we turn, and we turn, and we turn again. We return until finally we are home, back to that place inside of ourselves where we have never been wounded, where there is no despair, no anxiety, no fear. You are home. You have returned. 
In the words of the Apostle Paul, in Christ, all will be made alive. We are alive. Go in that knowledge today.